Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and I think an isolated sex clone island sounds terrifying. Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and I'm only into early Quellus poetry. You probably haven't heard of it. Welcome to Space the Nation. We are going to be talking about Altered Carbon, which if you have not read, of course, like stop the podcast right now, go and read it. And it is probably one of my favorite things that we're going to discuss so far. Also, don't think that you can watch the Netflix show and that's what the book is because there are, they are, while there's overlaps, they're very different. Yes. And it's good. I like it, especially the first season, but Mm -hmm. they're very different. What we're doing next, we are doing Starship Troopers, the movie. Then we're doing The Kindred by Octavia Butler. And then we're doing the movie Children of Men. Yes. And then we're doing the book the power. And that will be a nice feminist little trilogy for us to do. I'm really excited. Yes, I think also that will be good after doing Starship Troopers. Yes, it will be it'll balance the universe, I think. Speaking of which, uh, we have now narrowed our choices for our patrons only episode. We promised that we would do a patrons only episode once we got to over 100 followers. We have well over 100 followers now. So we have chosen three genre movies from all of the suggestions that you have provided. I want to be very clear before I say this, that a lot of the other suggestions you provided are really, really good, but we are just going to do them in ordinary order. We're not going to have them as a patrons only episode. So the three choices that you will have, and we will post a poll in our patron site so that you can pick are first the adventures of buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension the second choice is 28 days later and the third choice is the movie prospect uh, which is the most recent film again we will post this uh, on the page you will be able to vote and we will then uh, record after that but anna let's switch back again to altered carbon why are we doing this book <laughs> well as i said It's one of my favorite books in the genre. And it is a a book that represents a very niche genre that happens to be my favorite, which is the (laughs) hard-boiled noir in space, (laughs) which there isn't a lot of. And I shouldn't say just in space, uh, hard-boiled noir science fiction. Blade Runner is obviously kind of the primogenitor of this, but it is a movie. Mm -hmm. And there aren't a ton of books that do this. The first Expanse novel is actually pretty much hard-boiled noir in space. Hmm. If you With Miller. Miller is yeah, one of the main yeah. characters. He has yeah. the hat and everything. Well, yeah. in the book, obviously, he doesn't have the hat. But they do a good job of kind of personifying Miller as a hard-boiled detective in the TV show, which he is in the book. So this is one of, like, the maybe five books in the world that fits that description. <laughs> <laughs> and as far as I know, I would love to hear of more of them. So please, in the comments on this post or in the Discord, please, if you know of others that fit this description, I would love to know about it. And I think... This one does it really, really well, too. It does both Mm -hmm. the science fiction side and the hard-boiled noir side really well. And then, Dan, I'm going to read you a quote from the author. (laughs) The quote is from Richard K. Morgan, and, and this is from an interview he did about when the book came out, I think. Society is, always has been, and always will be, a structure for the exploitation and oppression of the majority through systems of political force dictated by an elite, enforced by thugs, uniformed or not, and upheld by a willful ignorance and stupidity on the part of the majority whom the system oppresses. (laughs) Need I say more, Dan? Need I say more? (laughs) You do not need to say more, but I have to say that that in hearing that quote, I, I honestly think this sort of comes at the fundamental... This gets at the fundamental ways in which we disagree, potentially, or, you know, respectfully disagree uh, in terms of our take on sci-fi and indeed perhaps the world more generally, because, (laughs) 
you know, after years of study and teaching and writing about international relations and power and all and political economy and all that, I have without question come to a somewhat similar conclusion, which is that most of human history is one of disease and suffering. And so, you know, I certainly agree with Morgan there. The difference might be that even on average, people now are so much healthier and wealthier than they used to be that it really is a friggin' miracle. And there is going this, Steven Pinker on me. I believe it this way. I don't 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 want me with him. But on this sense, think of me as Angus Deaton, perhaps, which is to say that there is some value to that system. And I am not cynical enough to dismiss it as simply more of the same. And so with that, while acknowledging that there are still structures of exploitation, structures of oppression, you want to name it. There are also so many ways in which the world is so much better now. And so, like, that's the part. Well, I think the world can be better and you can still say that it's mostly oppressive and that there should be a better system wherein we might get the kinds of progress that you're talking about. See, I think maybe the big difference between us is I think the kinds of progress you're talking about might also be available in other kinds of systems. That's possible. I am more wary of that. I I mean, obviously, we don't have any good (laughs) experiments on this. (laughs) But... You know, like that is the system that I want to advocate for. And I do feel like part of what, you know, I bring to the podcast, obviously, and to what I do is just to try and be the constant reminder that we can have better, that this is a this system is okay if you balance it out across everything. Mm -hmm. But it is also greatly (laughs) oppressed people who aren't like you and me, basically. And it's part of our job, I think as the people who are not oppressed to keep reminding others that there are these people who have not benefited from the system to any degree that we have. And now I will put away <laughs> the only thing I'll I will put say, away the soapbox. The only thing I will say in response to that is that as, as the person who brings the Jewish flavor to this podcast, I think occasionally what I have to point out is that it could be so much worse. And so that, but, but you're right. That's fair. And we, we, you know, Let's get to the story. Holding my tongue so okay. that we can talk about this awesome book. Yes. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> so the story behind this story is really interesting. The author, Morgan, dropped out of Cambridge and became a teacher of uh, English as a second language around the world. It doesn't say he studied in Japan, which I found find interesting hmm. um, because I sort of assumed there, there was some knowledge of Japanese culture based on the book. But the actual book, I I have some quotes from the same interview. Uh, He says, it started out from an argument I was having with a Buddhist. And who doesn't? Uh, (laughs) The point of conflict was the karma system. He was arguing that any suffering you undergo in this life is a direct result of something bad you did in a previous life, which sounds fair until you realize you can't actually remember any of your previous lives. Then it suddenly starts to sound existentially pretty fucking unfair. After all, if you can't remember a previous life, then to all intents and purposes, that life was lived by another person. And why should you be paying for someone else's crimes? And from there, I think you can kind of see how the idea of like the sleeves might have come to him. Mm-hmm. Although it's funny, I don't think he actually explores this idea. No, <laughs> I was going to say, this isn't, this is not discussed <laughs> at all, I think, in the novel. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't discuss this particular idea as much as he does the whole system of oppression thing. Yeah. And I liked this quote about writing a psychopath as a main character. And someone in the Discord um, brought in a quote from Kovach that sounds very like, I studied the blade, like very Steven Seagal sort of masculinity and i think that's intentional like i think that he's supposed to be a little bit of a dick 
as it were, oh, in yeah. all of the ways that you can <laughs> use that word, including private dick. I don't know. Anyway, I mean, he is intentionally a psychopath. Like, he has, like, a sort of coldness to him. Yeah. Right? I, like, he says he's a psychopath. I guess. I mean, or, you know, like, the, I, the interesting question is, was he... I, he was I think not born that. He was not born that. I think he's he was made that. And so... And, and so there's a self-awareness to it. Like, yes, he knows yes. the bad stuff that he does, which I guess makes him not quite so much a psychopath. But in any case, yeah. I did appreciate this quote from Morgan where he says that as an English teacher in foreign countries, you wind up spending a lot of your time being kind and supportive to people. <laughs> in some <laughs> cases, you'd rather punch out. I mean, what can you do with a student, a group of students, actually, in front of you with something like, ah, yes, Hitler. Now, he really knew how to handle the Jews. That's an extreme case, of course, but it actually did happen to a colleague of mine. And there are hosts of less offensive but thoroughly unpleasant attitudes to be found in the heads of some of the people you teach. And for some reason, these people feel that the classroom is the ideal place to come out with all this shit. <laughs> so Kovach dripped out of me one corrosive drop at a time as a side of my character I had to repress in order to do my job well. Oh, my God. Wait. So Kovach... Kovach is what happens when you finally get sick of teaching. This is fascinating to me. Okay. <laughs> All right. I uh, would say that also, though, so one difference here, Dan, yes. is that if you're teaching English in a foreign country, you are definitely an employee. And you are being paid in some ways not to instruct them in any other thing besides English right. language. Whereas a position in a traditional like liberal arts college as a professor, like you're kind of expected to call bullshit on students when they spout bullshit. I would hope I so. I mean, yes. that's changed somewhat as the importance of professor reviews has become like way overvalued. But And now I'm going to be the one who bites my tongue. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of venting, this book is very graphic. Uh, yeah. In many ways. Yeah. This interview only asked him about the violence, uh, which I understand because it can be uncomfortable to ask about the other kind of graphic stuff that happens in this book in an interview. But what he said about the violence is where the violence arises in my books. It's intended It's intended to shock, to horrify, and to some extent get the reader to face up to their own ambigu ambiguity on the subject. Because we all like seeing the bad guys taken down, but we don't usually like it so much when the flesh and blood reality of that act is rubbed in our faces. That ambiguity is exactly what I'm after. And speaking of flesh and blood rubbed in one's face, <laughs> uh, here's where I should add that, yes, there are some pretty intensely graphic sex scenes in this book. Dan and I discussed it before we started recording. And I actually think the reason I said uncomfortable is that I was thinking, like, I'm going to have to talk about this book with Dan. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I don't want to make you uncomfortable. No, no, this. no, no, no. But, they, I, but we, we talked about it. And I guess we're both like adults enough. Uh, they're good. Yeah. They're good sex scenes. They're quality and, sex scenes, yeah. yeah. And I would say from a female perspective, what I appreciate about them is that they're not male pleasure-centered. And that's kind of rare. I mean, they're very male-centered because the whole book is male-centered because Kovach is super masculine dude. Yeah. But he exudes dude very, energy. Yes. They're very explicit, and you cannot skip them. <laughs> right. The other because thing, but I would add here like, and there, there's plot points yeah. that are laid out in uh, during, you know, the bodies intertwined stuff. And uh, Game of Thrones, people started calling that sex position, which I I liked, but mm -hmm. Game of Thrones did not invent it. True. I would also add again, like you know, we're. We shouldn't be embarrassed about this. Like, he deserves some credit for actually writing quality sex scenes. That is not necessarily an easy thing to do in in this kind of, you know, genre. 
As uh, someone who wrote a sort of quasi-romance novel, like a comedic romance novel, mm-hmm. I can attest. Yeah. Yes. Like, you feel ridiculous, <laughs> I think, <laughs> writing sex scenes. Right. Like, it's hard not to be kind of, like, aware of the need to come up with metaphors <laughs> and and as many people who've written about sex scenes before have pointed out like the number of like synonyms for various body parts <laughs> that you can use like rapidly dwindles right. and anyway I, I, more on that at some other point i was gonna ask when you write those scenes like <laughs> do you hear like the porn music in the background go bow wow wow you know like i don't what like i'm the- mostly aware of is like how do i make this not how do the, how do I bring the tenets of good writing? <laughs> Fair enough. To yes. this, you know, just yeah. talk about show and not tell. There we go. Like Ooh, that is that's yeah. only you know what, and that actually can get us just to talk about. I'll just mention before we get to the plot. This is a very show book. You know, I yeah. think it does a really good job. In fact, we'll talk more about the mystery later, but it's almost too subtle. Like the. the- it's not he doesn't like a lot of I think you know even books that I like that are in this in the mystery genre like the clues are like right there like mm-hmm. you're like oh that's going to be a clue later right you know and this one mm, not so much no so like I, my reaction to the book was in some ways and, and I don't know if this is a compliment to the to Morgan's writing or a knock on the plot but that well we're going to talk about the plot but to be honest. The plot's not the important part of this book. It's the mood. Like, this is an incredibly noir, you know, kind of book. And and it, in some ways, it was like, uh, that was the part I enjoyed, much more so than trying to figure out the plot. I'm not going to lie. There were times where I had to go on Wikipedia and be like, now, what did I miss here? Because, like, you know. The, I but, did uh, some searching yeah. of term, like, uh, characters mainly. Character like, names kept popping up again. And I'm like, wait, where did I see? Who is this one again? Like, yeah. And, like, that was tricky. Yeah, and maybe we will or won't get to. There's one specific little twist that I feel like he might have bungled. But okay. um, let's let's just talk about the plot itself. We keep talking. We've referenced it. So Dan, okay. let's, let's start with Act One. Uh, people are sleeves. So uh, to set the context, it is many centuries in the future. Uh, Earth has apparently colonized other worlds, all of which are at least nominally managed by the United Nations, which also runs Earth. The Protectorate. The Protectorate, yes. More importantly, however, there have been some technological advances, namely that a person's memory and consciousness can now be uh, stored in a cortical stack that can be implanted, extracted, copied, and then reinserted into a different human body, uh, which is called a sleeve. Of course, this obviously costs a fair amount of money. There are wealthy people, at least on Earth, that are called meths, uh, short for Methuselahs, who can re-sleeve at will, which basically means they have what would amount to an infinite lifespan. Most other people can maybe afford to do it once, and apparently Catholics oppose the practice entirely, and there is going to be some sort of debate about a UN resolution uh, that would potentially allow Catholics who are killed to be able to be revived temporarily so they can testify against whoever potentially might have killed them. So... We meet Takeshi Kovach, an off-world former UN envoy on ice for vague criming with his partner Sarah. He has been re-sleeved on Earth uh, in the body of someone with combat training and neurochem to help investigate the murder of one Lawrence Bancroft, a meth who is actually still alive, of course, because he had a backup cortical stack and cloned bodies. He was found dead in his very fancy house and has no memory of what had happened in the 48 hours before he died. Given the security at the house, it would seem to be very difficult for anyone besides his wife to get in and kill him, and therefore the police has uh, ruled it a suicide. 
If Kovach can solve the murder, he gets paid a lot of money and can re-sleeve into whatever body he wants. The police, led by one Kristen Ortega, have dismissed it as a suicide. Bancroft's wife, Miriam, is super hot. I just think that should be worth pointing out. Anna, I am, it's a plot point. It's, it's a, actually it is legitimately a plot it's, point. It really is. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, Anna, I am legit impressed at, at how the book manages to establish the mood relatively quickly. This is about as sci-fi detective as it gets, which, as you say, is, is uh, exactly your jam. Why does it work so well? I think the writing is really good, and, and this is the second time I've read it, so I think... I noticed it more, which maybe can be a bad sign if you're like noticing the writing, capital W. Writing. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, writing. But um, I think it's because I was reading it for a second time. He's obviously borrowing a ton from Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. Like, but you can tell he's borrowing from Blade Runner because he describes this environment so well. Not because he's like, wow, it looks a lot like Blade Runner. You know, he's showing, not telling. Right. And I want to just give a couple of examples of, of the stuff that I really liked. Um, one line in particular really has stuck with me. I remember reading it for the first time, and it's in the beginning of the book, and I think it just gives you a taste of the kind of writing you're going to see in the rest of the book. The sky was the texture of old silver, and the lights were coming on across Bay City. And that's a short little sentence, mm-hmm. but the s- color of old silver, like is such an evocative phrase. And just the idea, like, I can see it. I can just see that scene. I have to admit, what, what that makes me think of is whether he's consciously playing off Neuromancer or not, because that's the, you know, the opening line of that is the sky's the color of television. Oh, yeah. So here's a paragraph that I think you can hear the Blade Runner in it. But again, he's showing and not telling. There was rain in the air when I got back to the city, a fine drizzle sifting down from the darkened sky. Parked across the street from Jerry's, I watched the blinking neon club sign through the streaks and beads of water on the windshield of the ground car. Somewhere in the gloom below the concrete bones of the expressway, a hollow of a woman danced in a cocktail glass, but there was a fault in the caster and the image kept fizzling out. Pretty okay. lovely, I think. I, I think I now want to read the audiobook by you of this book. I'm just all I'm saying. <laughs> that, 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 that's the compliment I can pay. <laughs> oh, I mean, they come on the writing's good, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yes, no, absolutely. All right, let's move on to Act 2, Dan. All right, so mm-hmm. Act 2, Threads Are Pulled. Kovach starts digging, folks start trying to kill him, and when that fails, uh, they try to torture him by re-sleeving his consciousness into more frail bodies. Along the way, he learns many things, including, first, uh, Bancroft has been visiting brothels of varying quality. This second has resulted in the death of sex worker Elizabeth Elliot. Her mother, Irene, was also imprisoned for attempting to hack into Bancroft's memories. Third, AIs apparently run the best hotels, as Kovach is staying at one called the Hendrix, uh, which Amusingly, Kovach does not understand the cultural reference of the Hendrix. Fourth, he has been re-sleeved Kovach into the body of someone named Riker, who was uh, accused of being a dirty cop, who also apparently had uh, a thing with Ortega. We learn, fifth, that meths don't see things quite like ordinary people. And finally, sixth, we learn that uh, Miriam Bancroft really knows how to fuck and wants Kovach to drop the investigation uh, and be her boy toy on a remote island somewhere. Anna, I think Altered Carbon seems to, at least in the first third of this book, sort of, you know, come down on the mind-body problem by saying, MIND! Um, <laughs> am I wrong? And it, it does sort of come up later in the book, yeah. but I think there's a kind of a lot about his attraction to Ortega. Right. 
being a chemical thing yeah. that he has trouble resisting yes. because it's such a strong attraction, which I think is a body thing. And then there's a lot of alteration of bodies. Yeah, that's true. That's you throughout know, the novel, it, actually. Yeah, yeah, throughout the novel, both through, through drugs and like physical augmentation. Mm-hmm. And these things seem to change the character of people mm-hmm. somewhat. And that maybe that's saying mind, but and mostly yes. Obviously, if you're going to have a future in which people's cortical stacks are you know played around with, you are kind of automatically citing right. <laughs> but I actually think mind. But I think you point out a subtle point, which is I think again in the first half of the novel, it really does seem like it's just all about the cortical stack that the body mm-hmm. the, the body can be augmented, the body can be manipulated, and all so forth. So that certainly matters, but it doesn't matter much in terms of the personality or the behavior of the person. And I think mm-hmm. you're right that in the second half of the book, you begin to realize, well, maybe there's something to that body thing that you you know, can't quite completely eliminate, which I thought was interesting and more subtle. Yeah. And I also want to say that I think that their relationship with Ortega is handled pretty well. And yeah. she's probably my favorite character. Um, <laughs> she's one of the only characters that's given both like a moral kind of framework and does cool criminal shit. Like, <laughs> you know, like a lot of the, the weakness of the book is a lot of bad people are bad. Good people are good to some degree. Yeah. I think it gets a little more complicated towards the end. Right. But at the beginning, it's a pretty black and white yeah. version of people. So I think Kristen is a nice, nicely shaded. I, I would agree with you in the sense of like, I'm someone who also like Kristen most, perhaps for slightly different reasons, which is this is someone who is clearly seen a lot and nonetheless still wants to do the right thing, which is yeah. my definition. But, of, yeah. Yeah, I would say that that's, a, yeah, that I didn't say that, but that I think is, yeah. yeah. Like, she's complicated, and she actually has a moral framework. And Kovac does, too, but he sort well. of consciously violates his more. Yes. <laughs> like, he's like, yeah, I have the moral framework, and now I'm going to ignore it. I so. think one of the things we're going to have to talk about is this question of Kovac's, like, competence and ability, because it... it, it it's a fascinating thing as it varies as it sort of goes through the book. And part of this I can't could not figure out is was this a function of literally the genre, which is you're supposed to believe that Kovach knows what he's doing and then you realize he's in over his head, or is it specific to Kovach? Let's we will get to that. Yes. Uh, let's talk about Act Three. All right. Uh, the big reveal and the big epiphany. So after a synthetic named Trep kidnaps Kovach uh, and then he escapes, uh, Takeshi begins to realize that he has been implanted with a tracking device. He and Ortega try to interrogate Cadman. Uh, this is the dude who first attempted to kill him when he originally checked into the Hendrix and gets uh less than nowhere with him, basically. Cadman, in fact, manages to escape and uh, attempts to kill Kovach again. Kovach interrogates the warden of his re-sleeving facility to find out what happened, but Trep shows up again, apologizes, and then takes him to Ray, a.k.a. Rylene Kawahara, a, a meth crime boss who Kovach has dealt with in the past. Ray was the one who uh, recommended Kovach to Bancroft. Ray offers Kovach a deal. Offer up a patsy to Bancroft, essentially an explanation for Bancroft as to why he died that does not in any way point to Ray. And Ray, in return, will not torture Sarah, uh, who is Kovach's friend and whose stack she now possesses. Kovach and Ortega meet up again. Uh, Ortega is pissed about Kovach's extracurricular activities, and then they rage screw because it's that kind of novel. Kovach decides to accept Ray's terms with the proviso that he can unfreeze Irene Elliott to help with the necessary hacking. Uh, Kovach convinces Bancroft, but in making the sale, realizes that Bancroft actually was at Kawahara's brothel, uh, named Head in the Clouds, the night he was killed. I just got that double entendre. Anna... <laughs> 
Can we talk about Kovacs's envoy conditioning? Um, it gets referenced a lot, like it's a big friggin' deal. And in the end, I'm going to say this is the one, like, tell-not-show part of this that I thought in the book, which is it was constantly envoy conditioning this, envoy conditioning that, and I didn't know what the envoy conditioning actually did. I think your criticism is valid, though I kind of liked it. Um, <laughs> although there's a specific part of it that I liked. The parts of it that I didn't think were handled that well are the, the parts actually about like suppressing your emotions and right. stuff. Like, because that's like combat training. That's like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's any different than any other kind of elite military force ever in the history of people. Right. Like, all of them are trained to be psychopaths. Mm-hmm. I mean, I. I take that back. I mean, I people in the military are not psychopaths, but no. to kill people and to not feel bad about it. Or to like not feel to, debilitated by it. Yeah, Debilitated by it um, and, and be able to keep doing it, I right. should say. Like, you have to have a certain mindset. Like, you, I think it's been shown you can't keep that mindset forever. Like, the trauma of that is eventually going to, like, mm-hmm. you're going to have to pay for it. But, I, again, I just don't think it was that special. What I liked was sort of this idea of envoys as Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> um, Fair enough. Okay. No, no, no. That I actually did like. Like, one of the things I thought about this yeah. was that, oh, wow. So an envoy is not actually a soldier. It's like part soldier, but also part detective, part, you know, diplomat. Yeah. You know, like that just, I think part of this might have been the conditioning of literally the name envoy, which, you know, implies a diplomatic thing. And I think, unfortunately, in the context of the book is sort of a cruel irony. But I did like the idea that for once the, like, the vaunted, respected profession, as it were, was one in which it wasn't just the ability to kill, it was also the ability to detect, the ability to read a situation, the ability to actually engage in diplomacy, perhaps. So he has a wonderful metaphor for, like, what envoys do, where he talks about seeing a map of a city, like, even a very detailed, like, topographical map of a city, and you can tell where the highways are, you can tell certain kinds of traffic, but that it takes being on the ground to really know a city. Right. And then he he offers the idea of looking for differences in humanity and kind of creating your picture of a culture through a very kind of um, intense analysis of those differences. Mm-hmm. And... I don't know. It, it, that's the Sherlock Holmes part of it, I think, is like looking for those tiny clues to like what a culture set, like what a it, culture is about. It is also, I would add, a very great way to write a novel because it yeah. basically, it, it's a clever device that allows Kovach to be our way into understanding, oh, this is Earth in the future. And he doesn't understand it just as much as we don't understand it. And so yeah. it means that, you know, he learns and that that's the way in which we can learn. That's a good point. Let's move on. The final act. Ah, the sting. Yes. Cadman kidnaps Ortega, and Kovach agrees to trade his life for hers. Cadman then tries to kill him in as humiliating a way as possible, but the cops and Trep rescue him, at which point Kovach devises his grand plan to take down Kawahara. Uh, Kovach essentially double sleeves, and you double sleeve by essentially making sure that your cortical stack is in two different uh, bodies. The Riker body takes Miriam Bancroft off to Fuckfest Island or whatever and sort of distracts her. The uh, other Kovach is downsloaded into a ninja body, I believe, and slips on board the head in the clouds and catches Kawahara unawares. Explaining that he has planted a virus in Kawahara's memory backup, she then admits that she needed Bancroft's influence with the UN because of Resolution 653, because a Catholic uh, sex worker who saw a lot died after falling from the head in the clouds, which is sort of a blimp in uh, space. The night Bancroft was killed, uh, he killed that Catholic prostitute. Racked with guilt and unwilling to be blackmailed, 
uh, by Kawahara. Bancroft killed himself, and then which led to the reboot, which then led to him hiring uh, Kovach in the first place. And the reason Kawahara obviously gave Kovach uh, as the name was the belief that Kawahara could control Kovach. After spilling the beans, Kawahara and Kovach fight, and then Kovach puts a grenade next to Kawahara as the blimp is falling. Kawahara in- dies and doesn't just die, has real death. Real death in this novel means not just that you're dead, but that your cortical stack is destroyed and therefore you can't be revived. Kovach, at least in the ninja body, is di- uh, killed, but the stack survives and is then revived. Later, Kovach gets Miriam to confess her part, which is that she drugged Bancroft's clone to put him in a murderous state when he was downloaded into it, knowing that he would then go uh, to a brothel rather than home. Kovach hides Miriam's part in the crime, his promise to his copied self, the one who went off to Fuckfest Island and spent time with Miriam, and then had to be erased because under UN law, you in fact cannot double sleeve. In the end, uh, Riker is freed and downloaded into his body, the Elliots are all reunified, and Kovach is apparently headed back to Harlan's world with Sarah. On a detective noir done well, I think requires a very careful alchemy of cynicism and honor. And I do think the novel pulled this off quite well. What say you? Yeah, I mean, I love this book. Yeah. Um, and you're right. Like, that's a good way of describing that mix that has to happen in noir for it to work. I mean, I think I think noir, really excellent noir, is like all genre fiction almost, the most excellent versions of that genre are mm-hmm. incredibly difficult to pull off. Yep. Like the thing about genre is it's kind of easy to write a mediocre genre novel. Right. That, there's literally a formula. That, is there yeah, there's yeah. a formula and it can be yeah. enjoyed. And there's a lot yeah. of mediocre genre that I like. Right. I think the upper echelons of any kind of genre writing are just the, even, I would say as difficult as mm-hmm. any other form of high literature. Right. This is not like true, true. Like, I mean, it's not a perfect book by any means, no. but it is, I would top 10% maybe. And it pulls off that alchemy. It pulls off the deep, um, evocative descriptions. It gives you, a, again, I think an important part is this twisty plot that yeah. does unravel in a way that you don't get. You don't, you're not going to like guess like a problem in most mediocre you know, noir or detective fiction is like they either do they either lay out the clues like here's a clue, here's a clue, right, here's yeah. a clue, or it's so opaque that you don't you know believe it in the end. And this does a good job of like you realize with him like what the clues are, and you can kind of put it together as he goes. So I I guess the one thing I will say is that this was a as I was reading this book, like there were parts where I'm like, okay, let's get to the plot twist. Like I you know. <laughs> There were sections where it's like, okay, I understand you're setting this up. Let's get to where we're, you know, going to see the sudden reveal of, oh, I didn't see that coming. But but I grant you, I didn't necessarily deduce the actual plot details. And it's done in, in a more subtle way. And I don't mean to belittle the book in that sense, but it was it, there were times where the beats were a little more obvious to me, I guess. I don't know. To me, the biggest plot hole is this mm-hmm. idea that snuff acts, you know, killing someone in the act of sex, real death in the act of sex, is mm-hmm. so beyond the pale that it would absolutely ruin someone who was caught doing it. Mm. Because there's so much that's permissible in this society. Like, it's bad, sure. Like, it's yeah. bad to kill somebody, right? right. But the, the, the idea that the snuff part of it would be so shameful so that... Th- you would you would need like that that Bancroft that Lawrence Bancroft would be racked with guilt. 
So like, I, I guess part of me was like, I mean, that seems like a really weird thing to, to say, maybe. But uh, it is a hurdle for me to believe that Raylene, especially, that all of her career, like everything about her, she's so powerful. The met- See, it's the problem of making the meth so powerful and amoral, mm-hmm. like that they have, but this one, you know, like Achilles heel is if they get caught snuffing someone. <laughs> I, mean- I guess, let me put it this way. I actually like, I, I didn't, I the impression I got, so I, I have a couple thoughts on this. The, the First of all, the impression I got was that the moral revulsion was unique to Bancroft. I don't know if it was necessarily like, oh, oh God, what will society think of me? I, the impression I got, and this was, I actually liked that Oh, well, part. that actually makes it, I mean, that could be something I just didn't pick up, and that does make it work better. Right, that because I actually think it like it, it it complicates his character in interesting ways. Yeah. And so like that yeah. part, I, that was that was the impression I got. the The other question I will have for you though is that it, I, I guess two questions. The first was was that I couldn't figure out was the snuff killing thing like in the absence of a Catholic person. I would assume that would be something that you could do on a fairly regular basis because the implications aren't that serious. You can just right, right, right. Them. So that's part of it. But what I intuited, and they, yeah. he doesn't actually say. Um, but what I thought is it's the titillation of real death. Right. Which is entirely that, possible. And I, I think that that actually I think that interpretation is probably correct. And that that's also what makes Head in the Clouds so um, exclusive, special, dirty, yeah. whatever, is that you are doing things in real life like virtuality. Right. Like you can do anything. Right. But there's a sort of titilla- it's it's a weird like fetishization of real life. Right. Like. It's the idea that we've gone so far that it's, it's the no idea longer. Of well, it's also the uh, yeah, it's the idea of stakes, but it's also like you know, there's one class of people that can't afford to live in virtual, right? Mm-hmm. It's sort of this idea like when rich people do it, it's eccentric. When poor people do it, it's crazy. Right. Like, oh, that's yeah. <laughs> the other thing, I, I I think the other thing that I came away with from this novel, which it's not disappointment exactly, but. The, re- the sleeving idea is so fascinating, and I think, and I know there were other books after this, but, like, it struck me that, like, you the more you think about that, the more I kept wanting to think, like, there should have been a norm in the book saying that, like, your first body is different in some ways. Like, I would imagine that, like, the first three sleeving is going to be completely disorienting as opposed to subsequent ones, and, like, therefore your attachment to your first body would matter more than what would happen after that. But like that's yeah. again the way I would th- yeah. yeah, I would say having read the other books, which I don't think are as good as this one. Oh, okay. Um that although it's like the thing that's like makes these books so different, it's like the kind of gimmick of the books, right. it isn't fully, fully explored. Right. Like, because in the, other parts other things that he's interested in. <laughs> right. Because he's actually the, much more interested in power dynamics than he is in the idea of sleeping. That's interesting. yeah, that's that's a fair point. Um but again, like the whole idea of double sleeving, like I would I could imagine like there's no, well, that's like, why it's I'm, illegal, right? Yeah, like it's, I mean, illegal, yes. But like, right. I kept thinking that like th- there's going to be multiple ways in which that could be uh, abused and used and so forth. One of the things I found interesting is someone who thinks a lot about prison abolition is the <laughs> idea that prison is just going cold, right? You know, and it in the so the only thing you're robbing people of is time. Although, it, you when I say only. You know, mm-hmm. it's not only like it's sort of a realization that you don't need to punish people in a way like that the also, cost for for bad acts mm-hmm. doesn't involve treating people like dirt. I guess it except involves like, it, like literally just robbing, like just taking away their time. They don't even get older. 
Right, and this is the weird part because you would think that the one the, the one element of that punishment is that if you put people away for a century or what have you, what it causes is people to live past their peer group, their family, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Except who the hell knows in this kind of society where if people can re-sleeve, it might be the oh, case that they're still it, around. It, it, but know? also you miss everything. I actually yeah, think that they do that's make true. a ge- gesture towards this that makes me understand the value of um, what you're missing when right. you go on ice is that yeah. you miss everything. Yeah. Like there's whole parts of the world, your family, whatever, that you don't get to see, you know, you don't get to be a part of. The other Although, thing I would say as far as like other books that could have spun off of this mm-hmm. that are gestured at but not explored is right. the idea that at some point we understand what whales say. <laughs> <laughs> at some point in the history of this novel. Yes. No, that was actually, that was, yes. No, I had the same reaction. I was like, wait, we what? Hold on, that's really fucking interesting. I want to know more about the whale thing. Um, At some point, there's a day that's called, I think, Understanding Understanding Day, Day, yes, where it turns out the whales have been a community. Also, the Martian line, which, again, is one of these things that sort of casually dropped in of like, oh, yeah, it turns out there was this really old Martian civilization. That actually, that's what the rest of the series is kind of about. Oh, okay. So just so you you know, like, that's the part that he gets interested in. I would read the book about Understanding Day for sure. (laughs) Um, I actually am also going to put a content warning on the off chance that you haven't read this book and are listening to this podcast, there is a scene in Head of the Clouds that involves animal cruelty that I had to put the book down. Like, it's really bad. And you might just want to page ahead a little bit on that if you're the kind of person that's easily disturbed by such things. It it has a certain plot value, but you don't really need it, so just skip it. Um, So... Dan, I have a genuine question. <laughs> Go ahead, Anna. <laughs> is there IR in this book? Anna, there is a very little amount of IR in this book. Um, and what there is does not make a ton of sense. So the reason I say this is that for there to be international relations, there have to be multiple actors contesting for power in what we would presume to be an anarchic realm. And that's not really what's going on in Altered Carbon. What there is plenty of is imperialism. There is no denying that, you know, there is the UN on Earth and there is the protectorate that apparently controls all the planets elsewhere. What there is not is any reason given for the imperialism, which is why does the UN use envoys to control distant worlds? Is it for power? Is it for profit? It's never really kind of explained. It's just sort of presumed. And also I would add that the planets seem so far away from each other. I mean, it's sort of acknowledged that it takes a long time. Yeah. No. Needle casting can get you from one place to another instantly. Was needle casting meaning that you could down, you could virtually transfer from one cortical stack yeah. to the next? Okay. Yeah. It, he doesn't do a great job of, of explaining this. But in later yeah. books, it is laid out that the reason why humanity has been able to expand the way that it's expanded mm-hmm. is that um, this technology of needle casting was discovered, which you can beam the cortical stack. Okay. Which is you know, more interesting. It, 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 laws of physics just toss them way out the window. Like, okay. and, and one of the ironies of this, and again, the later books kind of talk about this, is that humanity has sent out colony ships. Yeah. But the needle casting beats them to these worlds. <laughs> ah, <laughs> that, okay. That by the, it's, so everyone kind of realizes by the time the colony ships get there, there's Wait, that makes be, no fucking sense. How can the needle cast beat the colony ship? Because to needle cast presumably means... There has to be a body on the end of the the, the needle. The cast. ancient technology. Oh, for the love of Christ! Okay. Yeah, 
I believe now I want to check Wikipedia, but like that's my understanding is that, that the the reason that it's yeah okay. Yeah. Okay, let me put it this way. I still, like, that allows for the instantaneous transfer of people. What it doesn't allow is for, is the instantaneous transfer of anything of, of, like, material value that you would presumably want from a planet. In other words, the thing that I still don't understand is, why does the UN feel the need to control these planets beyond just, like, sheer power? What are you getting? Is there anything actually being traded or exchanged? Yes, Um, there is. Harlan's World has some commodity on it that... I cannot remember what it is. Okay. But there is a commodity on it that is valuable. That I do recall. Maybe. I I, I guess my point is, is that like... I, I feel like we're going to get a lot of comments on, 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 the, <laughs> on this episode. That's fair. And like, I, again, I, I'm not, let me put this way. I, I, I'm not trying to say imperialism can't happen, you know, and, and, it, and exploitation it, can't happen. That's fine. It could totally happen. I just didn't quite get oh, why. Oh, it's a plot hole. I mean, yeah. I think if, if nothing else, it's a plot hole. And and also, um, I actually am glad we're going to keep all this discussion in here because I, your hosts are human. <laughs> they don't have perfect memory of books they've read in the past. No. <laughs> no, and it was particularly the case with this book. Um, okay. And, and, you know, that said, I will say the stuff about Mars was kind of interesting. I like the sort of, the particularly the, the conversation about what the history of the Martian Empire was told from the Earth perspective. The idea that, you, of course, you construct the history in such a way um, as to make it a, a more favorable to the UN, as it were. Um that said, it was interesting that there would be resistance to empire. That part totally tracks. That is fully consistent with international relations. And I did like the sort of logic of empire that is talked about. In, in some ways, the, the things I liked best about this book in terms of international relations was actually the stuff that was literally explicitly said by characters. Um, I think one of the characters at one point says, you know, power is habitually buried. The essence of control is to remain hidden from view. And that tracks. That is, you know, th- within... Uh, political science there's a whole faces of power kind of literature that says in some ways the 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 best faces of power are the ones that you know are barely observable as it were i will say this it made no sense the whole logic of the un envoy system doesn't quite make sense in that uh you know presumably these envoys are incredibly well trained they're recruited from from military they clearly have a whole specialized set of skills and yet once they're discharged they apparently can't do that much that is not a terrifically incentive compatible system and so like i I don't think this is explained well dan but i will just jump in i think the only thing they can't do is run for office which is stupid. It's it's just like my body is registered as a lethal weapon kind yeah. of thing. Like it's dumb. It's a dumb aside. And if I had been his guy's editor, I probably would have just been like, "You don't need to. That's not." Yeah, it's not, it, it was hardly necessary, <laughs> I guess. But yeah, that would that would, I guess I reacted to that line. But go ahead. So I have a perhaps IR adjacent question. Okay. There is a scene mm-hmm. in which Bancroft justifies his nasty sex habit. <laughs> by talking about late stage capitalism it begins with might be the funniest line in the book which i will now quote i am sorry <laughs> can i guess what this line is i'm not ever sure i want does it start with have you ever come i was gonna come on dan i was okay. gonna you beat me you, you stepped on it sorry have sorry. you ever come Let's... in a woman's face kovach which <laughs> in the context now in the context i laughed out loud and <laughs> And I think Kovach almost does as well. Like, it's mm-hmm. like, it, it, because he's, they're talking about, you know, when they're talking about him cheating on his wife. Right. It, but it's all very, like, urbane. Yes. You know, and then suddenly he does this thing. It's a very sophisticated but, conversation, and then it goes to that. Right. 
And then it gets sophisticated again. <laughs> and he says, Bancroft says, you come from another place, a brash young colonial culture. You have no concept of how the centuries of tradition have molded us here on earth. The young of spirit, the adventurous, all left on ships and droves. They were encouraged to leave. I guess maybe I was wrong about the needle casting. Yeah. Hmm. They were encouraged to leave. Uh, I do know needle casting can get you to a place instantaneously. Right. And I think the envoys do use needle casting to get from point A to point right. B. That's okay. fair. Yeah. Anyway, you can have no concept of how the centuries of tradition have molded us here on Earth. The young of spirit, the adventurous, all left on the ships and droves. They were encouraged to leave. Those who stayed were the stolid, the obedient, the limited. I watched it happen, and at the time I was glad because it made carving out an empire so much easier. Now I wonder if it was worth the price we paid. Culture fell in on itself, grappled after norms slipped by, settled for the old and familiar. Rigid morality, rigid law. A sort of super cultural straitjacket with an inherent fear of what might be born from the colonies, the protectorate arose while the ships were still in flight Mm. when the first of them made planet fall. Their storied peoples woke into a prepared tyranny. This is to justify having nasty sex. (laughs) Like that is... It, right, it's true. Like yeah. that entire soliloquy yeah. is in service. And that of him. is why, Anna, you like to come into a woman's face. That's like, you know, that's yeah, like that. <laughs> is, and now you know the rest of the story. Yeah, right. And it's like you know what? People have liked nasty sex for a long time. Like <laughs> there have been kinks <laughs> forever. Yeah, and it's not always been in a decadent culture. Mm-hmm. You know, in some ways, like I thought this little soliloquy did remind me of H.P. Lovecraft. And in his sort of, you know, fear of decadence. Although what I think is interesting about what Morgan is doing here is he's saying there is this decadent culture, but it never collapses in on itself, really. Right. Like the capitalism just keeps on churning. Mm-hmm. Power just keeps on replicating power. It just keeps going. Yes. Um, and there's no real cost for the decadence except for the cruelty of the meths. I believed much more the idea that meths had a harder time holding on to a moral framework mm-hmm. than I did that they would be somehow like the nasty sex would be nastier than ever before. But I think weirdly, like the second part of that discussion where where Lawrence talks about the fact that he reveres his wife, even though he does these other things, like I, you, maybe you didn't buy that, but I actually... Again, that was the parts that I thought actually thought were interesting, which is how, if you're a meth, do you actually go about living your life in not a completely amoral way? And I think the idea that they actually have a genuinely, you can weirdly argue, sexually liberated partnership. Yeah, I mean, I bought the open marriage. You can't have a marriage yeah. that's completely faithful for 300 years. Right, that exactly. I bought. Yes. That I completely bought. It's the it's the predilection towards particularly nasty sex yeah, yeah. that seemed kind of weird to me. Like, the only thing I kept thinking about that was that I would imagine that if you've been alive... Not that, that any kind of sex is particularly nasty unless it involves violating someone's consent. I'm glad we have that disclaimer in there. But yeah. the the important, I guess my point is, is that I the only thing I would imagine is that the, the one thing that you think about if you're going to be a Methuselah is that after a century, two centuries of not just living, by the way, but clearly living in a body that is capable of doing, you know, that is not decaying and, and so forth, is that eventually what winds up happening is you get bored. Everything becomes habit and routine. And so I can't imagine that what previously would have been thought of as taboo inevitably a, a meth would come to arrive at least trying because they haven't done it before. Yeah. Yeah, that, I, that it's just a particularly funny conversation. To yes, me. it like, is a fun, no, no, I, I had, I laughed as well when I first read that. Okay. Yes. And I agree that the political economy is interesting, which does remind me, Anna, 
Dan. Is there a critique of capitalism in this book? <laughs> Dan, what do, you, what do you think? I mean, it was it was it might have been kind of there between the lines. <laughs> it was so subtle. Uh, I barely missed it. So I will just remind people of the quote I read up top. And there is like just specific language about rich people in class, like throughout the book. I did think that the meths idea as a kind of not metaphor for uh, wealth inequality, but almost just like an extreme extrapolation of what uh, extreme inequality does was cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I yeah. agree. And it was an examination of how the rentier class gets further and further away from labor and the actual workings of society. Ooh, wow. That, that's, that language almost sounds Marxist, Donna. Oh, Dan, I have a quote from Lenin that might help explain this. Do you? Go, go for it. <laughs> and bad person, this is a good quote or a good analysis. <laughs> Hence the extraordinary growth of a class or rather a stratum of rentiers who take no part in any enterprise whatsoever, whose profession is idleness, the export of capital, one of the most essential economic bases of imperialism, still more completely isolates the rentiers from production and sets the seal of parasitism on the whole country that lives by exploiting the labor of several overseas countries and colonies. Yes. Is that from imperialism, you know, the highest stage of capitalism? I don't know. I just remember the basic quote about rentier uh, rentiers, capitalism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Rentiers. Did I say, I'm saying it wrong the entire life. You let me say it wrong, Dan. I think there's actually different ways of pronouncing it. I've always said rentier. Okay. That's always pronounced. I just, you know, like it's one of those words that I have read a lot more than I've heard. Yes. Yes. No, no, no. I totally get that. <laughs> so, you know, so are there themes? Dan? <laughs> yeah. And like, you know, this is in some ways I, I, I arrived at the same place you did on this point, which is that the, the, the other theme, I guess, that, that struck me was the ways in which power can affect the senses. Um, and again, mm. This comes through most clearly in the depiction of the meths, which, again, I thought was the most interesting part or characterizations, I guess, in in this book, um, which is that the meths are not necessarily that much wiser than everyone else. They're just a hell of a lot more unfeeling. And in some ways, this does track, by the way, with a lot of sort of social science research that suggests that people who live in gated communities, for example, tend to think less about the needs of poorer people and tend to think less about the necessity of, let's say, welfare benefits and so forth, which makes sense because they don't interact with them. And in some ways, this is sort of the necessary structural requirement for noir, I think, which is that noir always has to operate to some extent in an unfair system um, in which there is messy human behavior that is actually uh, uh, dealt with. And again, that connects to the idea that these myths are unfeeling, but not necessarily any wiser. And it's interesting because the other quote that stuck with me from this book was is this almost anti-rationalism that Kovach says at one point where he, he says, like, conscious thoughts doesn't have much to do with the way we live our lives, period, um, if you believe the psychologists. A bit of rationalization, most of it with hindsight. I'm not entirely sure I agree with that, but I'll acknowledge there's enough truth there to make me think about it. I think I, I like the way you put that, Dan, about the effect of power affecting literally the senses in this yeah. case. Because if you think about the myths as like the ultimate gated community, right? Like right. just this you know, place where very you have very little contact with anything. Mm-hmm. The idea that they would have to seek out more and more, you know, illicit thrills kind yeah. of makes sense. Like because they live in this buffered zone, you know, like that literally their senses yeah. like would need to be excited at a at a point beyond what a normal person needs. Right. In order to feel anything. 
Uh, and I agree that with that requirement for noir, and that makes me think of another one of the five books <laughs> that is a really good noir set in a science fiction context, which is uh, John Scalzi's Locked In. Ooh, okay. Which has a kind of similar conceit, which is that there is a virtual reality world that so completely mirrors our own, you know, that it mirrors, and yet there's there's a lot of things possible. And one of the things that's possible is to um, liberate the victims of a pandemic, which causes locked-in syndrome, which is the idea that you're completely conscious and awake, but you cannot. You're com- also completely paralyzed. Oh god! So yes, t- it is terrifying. And your so brain what happens? Yeah. So what happens is that these people can be transported to the virtual world and also, yes, beamed into someone else, hmm. um, who I believe are in this case androids, oh, okay. um, not like not clones. It's a really good book, really good mystery, and also explores the idea of disability in a really interesting way, hmm. which I just realized I can't talk about more than that because it would give away some of the plot. But Fair enough. yes, Scalzi's locked in. Yeah, as far as themes, I just go back to sort of the obvious i think having just said that about the mess and this idea of like how power affects the senses Mm -hmm. going back and thinking about the book i think it's even i like it even more (laughs) because even like the the book is such the reason why the writing is so good is because it's very sensory like the whole book is about senses and it's tactile yeah yeah. Yeah. And, no, like, and I, that's the reason for the sex scenes even. Like the sex scenes are in service of the plot in some ways because like they're about, again, actually for Miriam Bancroft, she has to heighten her senses in order to like have a good time as it were. <laughs> she has to she has to do things that are beyond the kin of normal people in order to continue to enjoy sex actually. Yeah. No, and I, I say one of my favorite passages, and it's it's, it's an interesting, as you say, Kovacs is, is a very dude character. And so actually one of my favorite passages was this very small paragraph about when he's at one point downloaded into a, a woman uh, oh, because she's going yes. to be tortured. And it's this lovely paragraph that comes out of nowhere um, of Kovacs' awareness of, yeah, women feel things in a very different way. And I was like, whoa. Oh, the, the line, I, yeah. I, I, it struck me so much. I, mean, I think this is quoted um, without looking at it, which yeah. is that for men, skin is a barrier. For women, it's a sensory organ. Yes. Which is, I think, you know, one shouldn't be reductive. But, <laughs> and it's a bit of a cultural thing too. Like women have to use skin as a sensory organ. Like we have to be more aware of our environment. It is protective, Dan. Yeah. Fair <laughs> like, I'll just drop in something that actually is sort of key to that particular moment, which is that there is not a time in a woman's life where the threat of sexual violence is very far away. Fair like yeah. you, you ha- it is always a threat. Like, it, and I'm going to say this because I know a lot of our, our listeners are men and perhaps they've never thought about it this way, but any woman who really thinks about it, who who's conscious, who is forced to like think consciously about her day, has a moment at which she's judging the risk of being subjected to sexual violence. Where you park your car, whether or not you go on a walk, that person who you see at the corner of your eye is that person somebody that you need to keep an eye on. Like mm-hmm. it is. I mean, I run. That's my right. form of exercise. And if I go running at any other time besides like broad daylight, you know, like I have to think about the path I'm running. Like, and it's not like I think I have to think about this or else I'll get raped, but it's just like a background concern. 
and it's woman I, training, as it were, or woman conditioning, the same way that there's envoy conditioning. That that's a part of what you're, it is. Uh, and yeah. in fact, like now that I'm talking about it, I think about that sense perception of like whether or not like he, he talks about his neurochem giving him a better right. sense of like a peripheral movement, right. and if if someone is around a corner, yeah. And I think that women probably have that sense that's more fair. than men. Yeah. Um, but as I said, it was it was striking within the novel because be, beyond that paragraph, I mean, it, you know. It, it was it added something to Kovacs's character. It was like, oh, okay, he's smarter than I thought. Fair enough. Yeah. You know, and like sort yeah. of moved on. So Dan, I think we've covered all the big stuff now. Yeah. Oh my God, there are lots of like tiny asteroids hitting us. It is pew, pew, pew. the debris field. So I just have two things on the debris field. Uh, the first, which I, I really loved, is Takashi Kovacs's theory of shopping. That's the way he opens up one particular chapter in which he talks about how originally, like, his view of shopping was that it had to be a surgical strike. You would go into a store, look for what you're getting, you buy it, and then you leave. And then over time, he has learned that there are times where it's nice to sort of leisurely shop and sort of, you know, soak in certain things. I confess I'm sort of halfway between the surgical strike and and soaking but like i've like i've actually migrated away from the surgical strike that is particularly male way i would argue of, of thinking. i was shopping. gonna say he learns yeah. that other way of shopping it's from, not that yeah. he just comes to it right like he's he taught learns it. He's tutored into it yeah from a woman but it's also he realizes and i think that it's one of his envoy trained trained sergeants or whatever that talks right. to him about the shopping yes and it's a, actually a way of learning about the culture yeah right. it's good good Which for I envoys liked. but I, I did i did like that little sequence the other thing i think we should talk about is you know as we've pointed out this became a netflix show and i do think it's interesting to sort of compare and contrast a little bit at least the first season of the show um with the novel because they took some pretty serious liberties with the book, I think, uh, if memory serves. And there are things that I really liked about what they did with it. And then there are things that I'm completely puzzled by what they did with it. But, I mean, Anna, what, did, what do you think about this? I do think the Envoy stuff was handled in a way that was at least less hand-wavy. And I also appreciated, it was such a cool idea, I actually thought it was in the book, which is this idea that Kovach can escape torture because what one of the tricks that envoys have learned is to control the screen, to control the virtual environment that they're in. It's very Matrixy. No, th- like, so that that was the episode that stood out for me as well after reading the book. It was like because I really liked that episode. I thought it was incredibly mm-hmm. well done, and it's again a showing not telling element of envoy conditioning. And I was disappointed when I was reading the book because I assumed that was going to be in here. And there's. You can see where they got that from in the book, like. But I, again, mm-hmm. props to whoever wrote that episode in the show because I think they really took something from the source material and elevated it so that it was better than the source material. Is what I would say. The other thing I'd say about the comparison to the TV show is the first season is really good, and the second season, which which does track with the second novel, mm-hmm. although I think it also borrows some from the third, is not quite as good for me. Maybe it's just my bias towards liking noir. <laughs> And the, the other two books are not as noirish, yeah. And they're much more about like history and actually, you know, resistance. That um, they're both a lot about resistance. But the hooks of those books did not grab me as much. And I, I do regret to inform you that Netflix has canceled the series after two seasons. So. Uh, I mean, the the, okay. the other things they did in the show, at least in the first season, that I actually didn't quite get was like they created this whole backstory with Kovach and uh, presumably whoever trained him is like there was a romantic interest there and and oh so yeah forth. no that's in the books oh that's, that is oh it's in the later in the books. books okay all right it wasn't books. in this one so that was the puzzling thing for me okay yeah, yeah that's yeah. good to know actually. all right okay and the other con- other comparison that i would love to make is that in the books 
they make the hotel based on Edgar Allan Poe, mm-hmm. which is, it's the Raven, I believe, rather yeah. than the yeah, Hendrix. Yeah. And that's just another noir element that I really loved. It's my bias to noir that, again, I kind of appreciated the the running joke of the Hendrix, but the idea that he would be staying at the yeah. Raven and that the hotel's AI would be kind of a mystery-informed, right. detective-informed um, construct, I thought was clever and I enjoyed. Well, no, I actually like that character in the show, and I think it's the yeah. only character to actually appear in both seasons of Memory Serves, but... Yeah, by the same actor. Yeah, yes, 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 yes. yes. <laughs> as far as my debris field, I, you know, the writing is very purple, but I love it. I do think Kovach is intentionally written as a little too hyper-masculine, a little too much of a psychopath, although it's hard to say. I would have appreciated more gender bending because that's one of the first things I thought about when mm. it talked about re-sleeving, not necessarily in your own bodies, not just in sort of like, I, I do think, I assume people would do it to experience sex, like in yeah. another body. Right. And then also I just had a thought about trans people. Like, is it just an easier solution for trans people in the future? Yeah, like, that was what it, I assumed, frankly. Like that if yeah. you're trans, that, that, you know, this is easily the the, the quickest and, and most efficient way of dealing with but, that. But also trans is not binary, right? And yeah. and that would have been another gender bending thing to explore, which is that there's all this augmentation. And he does mention at one point that some male presenting character has enormous breasts. But like, I would think that there would be more of that. Hmm. Yeah, no, I'm totally. I'm no, I'm sure, sure you're right. I think yeah. That's what yeah. I read anyway. <laughs> um, I know, maybe I was wrong. So hmm. that's about it for me. I think I, I, I've mentioned everything else that interested me or that I wanted to talk about. Again, if you like the kind of stuff that I like, you're going to love this book. And it was really fun to read it again. And, and I'm glad that you enjoyed it, too. No, I enjoyed it a great deal, actually. It was, it was a legitimate pleasure to read. I will say again that if you listeners have any other suggestions in the sci-fi noir genre, micro genre, <laughs> please uh, let me know. Uh, we might not do them for the podcast, but of course I would just like to read them. And then as far as like show business, as it were, our Discord has really taken off. It's a, a fun little community there. If you are a paying patron, you can join it um, at any level. I gather they're going to be doing regular watch parties. So we may or may not be a part of those, but I also gather that the one that they did without me or Dan, which is they watched Jupiter Ascending, was very fun. And uh, I don't think we were missed. Oh, that's Uh, good to know. Okay, good. Yeah. Uh, And and also, I think it's just a cool place. Like there's a, the day jobs discussion uh, thread is probably one of my favorites. And it's the part where people don't really talk about what we talk about it's mm-hmm. it's people just talking about what they do there's a toy designer in the in the Discord. oh cool so, excellent yeah all right the other benefits of being a patron by the way uh, include you can get merch you can participate in our monthly amas uh, and also the knowledge and this is really the most important part that by paying as little as three dollars a month uh, you are supporting uh, our sound person karen and most importantly karen's new puppy so you know if you don't want karen's new puppy to starve you will become a patron i'm not trying to say it's that stark well no i am I'm trying to say it's that stark a choice. So, if you, know. you want kibble in the bowl. Yeah, make that like choice. You got you to pay up. Sort of some reminders about what we're doing next. Starship Troopers, then The Kindred by Octavia Butler, then the movie Children of Men, and then the book The, the Power. Power. Yes. And feel free to offer suggestions. And a reminder, we are doing the patrons-only episode, and there it will be 
by the time you hear this, there will be, there is a post um, that is a poll on what you would like us to discuss. Mm-hmm. I think that's about it, Dan. Until next time. Keep this channel open for more.